Welcome to Life Side Beat. I'm your host, Hagen Poehler, and I am very excited to share my discussion with P2 Devgon. Dr. P2 Devgon is a physician entrepreneur, prior healthcare venture capitalist, and most recently was the co-founder of Volano Vascular, where he worked to develop and commercialize a novel needleless blood draw technology. After inventing the company's patented vascular device, known as PIVO, he served in various executive roles at Volano, including president, chief medical officer, and chief strategy officer before the company's eventual acquisition by the medical device giant Becton Dickinson in 2021. He is an active angel investor and advisor to early stage healthcare companies and regularly guest lectures at the University of Pennsylvania on healthcare entrepreneurship. Prior to founding Volano Vascular, P2 practiced as a hospitalist physician in the intensive care unit at the Philadelphia VA Medical Center, while also working at Safeguard Scientifics as a member of the healthcare venture capital team. He earned a BA in biological psychology from the College of William and Mary, an MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School, and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. P2, thank you for joining us today on LifeSide Beat. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So we'll just hop right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what life was like for you as a kid? I had a non-traditional background. My father was originally from India. My mom was originally from France. Uh, they both became naturalized U.S. citizens in the 70s, uh, had me in the late 70s. My dad worked for the Department of Agriculture and got promoted to be part of the Foreign Service Branch, which basically means he was starting to get stationed around the world in different embassies, um, you know, representing the U.S. And, and helping with trade. So I was born in 78, and then six months later, we moved to Taiwan, spent about a year, year and a half in Taiwan, moved from there to Damascus, Syria for four years, moved from there randomly to the to Europe, to Ireland. I spent two years in Dublin, where I found out much, much later in college that they were probably medicating me with Guinness when I was sick, as many parents do apparently in Ireland. After two years in Ireland, we spent five years in Bahrain, a small island nation off of Saudi Arabia. Awesome time there. That was a beautiful, like beautiful little island, you know, lots of great swimming and ocean time and all of those things. And uh, then Saudi Arabia for two years during Gulf War One. So we were actually stationed in Riyadh. We moved there two weeks before the before Iraq invaded Kuwait. Bad timing, but had a, had an interesting two years during the war, watching Scud missiles come up, fly over our heads and wearing gas masks and getting chemical weapons training from the U.S. military as a 12, 13 and 14 year old. My father eventually decided to you know, retire. He was getting a little senior in his career. So we moved back to, the, to Washington, D.C., and they retired in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, where I went to high school uh, there and eventually college in Virginia at William & Mary and then medical school at Eastern Virginia Medical School down in Norfolk. I certainly wasn't expecting that, but what an incredible journey. So let's jump forward in time a bit. You became board certified in internal medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania then practiced for a number of years at Philadelphia's VA Medical Center in the intensive care unit. Through that role, you conceived of an idea that would take you down a very cool path. Talk us through the conception of the PIVO device, the problem it's solving, and why it matters. Sure. I'll try to answer that question with a little bit more of a wandering path. Like most folks I think you talk to that have been entrepreneurs, it's never that simple. It's never like, oh, I had an idea, and then I built a company, and then we were successful, and you know that's how it works. The reality is it's much more of a serpentine path. So for me, so let me give you some of that, some of the, the wines along the way. So as I was going through my residency training at Penn, I had a list of about 30 things. I, I was kind of adding to this list. It literally was like an actual list in a notebook. I wish I could find a notebook, by the way. I can't find it anymore. It's lost to history. But I actually did have a notebook that had about 30 things that annoyed me about clinical practice, right? Things that I thought, God, that's dumb. Why are we doing it this way, right? And, I, and number six on that list, by the way, was blood draws. Number six got added because of a patient of mine. 
And I remember I had a golden weekend coming up, meaning that I had both Saturday and Sunday off, which is very rare, right? You only get that usually once a month. And so I was very excited. It was Friday afternoon. I'm ready to get the heck out of the hospital. And I get a call saying that the intern has been told that the patient's refusing blood draws and wants to talk to me. I was like, oh, no, like this is not going to go. This is going to delay me dramatically. So I run up there and I see this, this older woman and she's all black and blue on her arms. Uh, from all the blood draws that we've been ordering. And all every time I order a lab at a computer, right, somebody shows up about an hour or two later and jabs her with a needle at least once. And she's been there for about five or six days. She's in her early 80s. Um, and she's a really tough stick patient. I didn't know the term at the time. The the term is diva. Uh, it's, a, it's a great term. Don't be careful when you tell patients they're divas, but difficult IV access is the is the acronym. So diva. So she was getting relentlessly stuck with lots of failed attempts to draw blood. And we needed a lot of those labs to guide her care and some of the titration of her medication. But she says, look, I'm done. This is ridiculous. I can't take it anymore. I've been stuck like 30 times. So so I'm refusing lab draws. And I started to talk to her about why it was important and all the usual kind of, you know, spiel that we had and that I hope she's going to get out of here in the next day or two and all that. And then she asked a question. She goes, you know, I just don't get it. I had this stupid thing in my arm and she pointed to her little tiny peripheral IV catheter, this one inch little piece of commodity plastic that we inserted in the emergency department when she first got into the hospital five days ago. She goes, I, they drew blood out of this stupid thing when they first put it in. And then you guys stuck me with needles 30 more times. Why can't you get the blood out of this dumb thing in my arm? And I've never been asked a question, like a, like a relatively non-medical question, right, that I was just stumped. I, had, I was like, oh, it's a, actually a really surprisingly good question. I have no idea why we can't get blood out of a peripheral IV like today on, your, on the fifth day of your hospitalization. And so it's rare, by the way, that you get stumped like that, right? After four years of medical school, three years of residency, and a patient, you know, a wonderful lady or a woman just says, why can't we do this? And I have no idea. Like that doesn't happen every day, right? So it really, it really, pardon the pun, stuck with me. I wrote it down as number six. Blood draws seem kind of dumb. What, you know, maybe we could leverage the IV catheter. Why don't they work better for blood draws? Everybody's got them in their arm in the hospital. So that's where the 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 unmet need and kind of the the original kind of general concept of like could we solve that problem? I didn't have the actual solution, like the actual device solution for several years. So fast forward, I finished residency. I'm going through business school. I finished business school, and then I'm in the ICU in 2010 or so-ish, and it was after a shift that I was um, actually at Starbucks on my way home and had the idea for what if we could thread a small device through the IV system to solve it, kind of like what we do with stents for interventional cardiology or interventional radiology. And it was, uh, I don't want to call it a eureka moment, but it was one of those moments where you're like, huh, that could just work. Like, that's not a crazy idea, a disposable device that you could sneak through the IV there must be some mechanical or, or obstruction problems that are occurring. Those got to be pretty easy to solve. So that's, that's how it all started. The proverbial napkin drawing at Starbucks was how it all started. Incredible. With the insight from that patient, you ultimately devised a means of eliminating this so-called pincushion effect to help these divas, as you put it. Just from a bit more of a technical standpoint, can you talk about how the device works? Sure. In its simplistic form, it's just a tube that goes through another tube. I, I know it sounds a little little trite and silly, but that's really what it is. When we originally came up with the concept, 
no one had actually been studying this area. This was a commodity space. Peripheral IVs cost about $1.50, $1.60. They haven't really changed. The, the innovation in this space is about 30 years old. Uh, material, there's been some material advancements. But in general, a peripheral IV of 1990 is the same peripheral IV in 2010. Right? There was not a lot of uh, major innovation. There's only a few companies that basically own the market. They also seem to be the same companies, by the way, that also make needles. So kind of blood collection, vascular access is dominated by basically an oligopoly. Like there's like three or four companies that have a massive market share. And there's also no incentive for, for the, them to solve the problem because they own both sides of it, right? They have the needles and they have the IVs. So I think that's what partially stifled the innovation in that area. And I couldn't find a single published study. So back in 2010, I, I started to look into this. Maybe somebody's published on this. And I couldn't find a single study on why an IV fails to draw blood as it gets older or longer in its dwell time. So we guessed that the problem was going to be that the catheter must be kinked, right? Logically, it's a tube. So maybe it gets kinked. So we could solve that by pushing a more rigid tube through it. Maybe it's blocked at the tip with clot or fibrin that builds up on the tips of catheters. We know that happens in central lines that are much more expensive, more complex devices, but it must be the same phenomenon. So if we just went past the tip with another tube, we could avoid those obstructions, right? Kind of sneak past them. And then maybe we were the IV catheter was getting stuck on a vessel wall. You know, these vessels are not straight. They, they make a lot of turns. So maybe when you aspirate back, they were just suction cupping to the vessel wall itself. And that was blocking it off. You know, kind of like when you're drinking with a straw and you put the straw at the bottom of the glass, sometimes, you know, you get stuck. That's what we thought. It turns out those are all true. But there's also another four things that go wrong that we did not know that would take tens of millions of dollars to figure out and another decade to get there. It's been incredible hearing about the origins of this device. But I am excited to learn more about how you took Pivo from idea to product through the founding of Volano Vascular. So we jumped over it, but while you worked as a physician, you were also gaining healthcare VC experience at Safeguard Scientific. What were the highlights of that work, and were you able to translate any skills to your own company's formation? So if anybody who's listening to this gets an opportunity to become a healthcare venture capitalist, and you have dreams and aspirations of being an entrepreneur down the road, you should 100% take it. Being in healthcare venture capital, one, allows you to understand how do, how do you finance companies. So basically the mechanics, right? The, the bread and butter of like, what is a term sheet? What are the terms? What's customary? All of that is a good experience. The second thing is you get to have a huge network of other venture capitalists that you get to know where they now know that you're not crazy, right? They've met you. They've worked with you. You've worked on deals before. So that you, you have that semi-credibility that you know how to manage money and that you will not make crazy decisions with money. All right. So, so that's, that's the nice thing to have a network and access to that capital. Third part is, is meeting CEOs, seeing how CEOs present, how the successful CEOs that are serial entrepreneurs, what's different about them than the first timers that wind up struggling to raise capital or struggling to lead their teams or get fired, for example, from their companies. Um, and so by, by seeing that, I, I think you try to, you know, you, you, you start to wind up imitating the folks that you, that were successful and avoiding the behaviors of the folk that were not. So you clearly developed a potent combination of venture capital network connections, personal industry exposure, and a great product working to propel Volano forward in its early days. You also had a co-founder, Eric Stone, who was a Wharton colleague of yours. How did you two meet and decide to work together? I think this is the, the power of the network. So the Wharton Healthcare Management Program so my co-founder, Eric, is a 2007 grad. I was a 2010 grad. So we never overlapped. Uh, I was talking to one of our consultants who was helping us on a deal. 
who, by the way, his name is Jeff Morazzo, who is the CEO founder of Spark Therapeutics before he's the famous Jeff Morazzo, right? Back then he was just Jeff. He was also in the 2007 class and he was also learning teammates with Eric Stone. So talk about a small world, right? So he was like, you know, P2, you just talk to this guy, Eric. He would be a, he would be perfect for what you're working on. He could give you a lot of, you know, he, he could be kind of the yin and the yang for you. Like you've got a lot of the clinical and finance background and you, you have the idea. He's, he's been commercial for many, many years. Maybe together you guys could do something. He's coming by Philadelphia. You guys should have a drink. So again, that's how it all started. We had a drink on a, literally it was a dark and stormy night. I swear, dark and stormy night at Almond to Cuba on Walnut Street. And we talked, it was scheduled for about an hour. And we talked for about three hours about our, you know, ourselves and what we're working on, our dreams, our aspirations. And we realized that we both could be a pretty powerful force together. I don't want to overplay it. I, you know, it's, it's a little of a blur. I think we kind of agreed to keep talking was, was the actual deliverable at the end of that meeting. But over the next day, about, I think it was about four or five months, we stayed in touch. We started working on a founder's agreements. We started you know, passing ideas, building out the deck. And uh, that was kind of the beginning of it all. Both had full-time jobs at the time. We worked on this nights and weekends and over about 18 months built out the core of what became Volanovascular. And you mentioned that you two, you and Eric, had complementary backgrounds. I'd be interested to know what the working relationship was like in Volano's early days before the team expanded. Sure. So I think when you're looking for a co-founder, ideally you're looking for somebody different than yourself. Right, because investors love diverse functional teams. Cross functional teams are always going to be more successful than getting, you know, five doctor five doctor co-founders in a room is, is kind of pointless. Getting, you know, five McKinsey consultants in a room is kind of pointless. Ideally, you'd like to have folks that have different backgrounds, different sectors. So so folks that have either been on the business side, some clinical folks, right? Maybe some regulatory folks, engineering, all of that. So the more diverse the team, usually the, the better the outcome, at least in my experience. So for, you know, Eric, the last few years of his career before we started Volano was in sales and marketing, first helping launch drug-eluting stents in Europe for one of the largest med device companies. So he had kind of the big company experience checkbox, the OUS experience, you know, managing a team, marketing, running, you know, running a commercial launch. I did not have that. I had never done that, right? I've been a clinician for a while. And, and so I had thought about those things. We both have MBAs from Wharton, so we kind of both have the same academic you know, training on that, but he'd actually been doing that part. So I thought that would be incredibly helpful and useful. I'd never priced a medical device before, didn't even know how to start. So I think his commercial background really complemented the team. And we also had very different networks because we were different years. And so we basically doubled the size of our fundraising network because we had two different networks. So I'd come out of the venture capital side and I had a lot of venture and more formal institutional connections. He knew a ton of operators, CEOs, and like, you know, the, the folks on the operating side. And we were able to merge those two together pretty well to raise the, our original angel round and eventually way, way over $40 million to, to build the company over the next seven or eight years. Right. So as you're alluding to, Volano would grow. And as it grew, the company hit a number of key value inflection points in the regulatory process. Specifically, PIVA went through the 510k submission process, a means of gaining pre-marketing clearance from the FDA as a class two device. I'd love to hear from you how you determined that PIVA would fall into this moderate risk category versus a higher risk device that would need approval rather than clearance. Sure. That one's actually pretty easy. We just hired smart consultants and they told us that being a class two you know, medical device, like a 510k, we had a nice predicate we found. We were a 510k class two, just like our predicate. 
we leverage consultants. So, you know, we, myself and, and, and Eric, we're not experts, obviously, in every field of medical device innovation, right? So we were able to find a small group of seasoned people that we could bring on initially as consultants. Some of them actually eventually became more full-time to us down the road. But like most early stage companies, you're going to have to, just for the sake of budgets and 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 expertise, you just got to hire a lot of consultants. So that's how, how it was. So the initial team when we when we first got going so after we did our angel round and kind of there was eight there was about 18 months of de-risking where we both still kept our day jobs so we did everything nights and weekends we outsourced everything pretty aggressively to just prove some key milestones before we took the jump going full-time and raising a larger round of capital i think far too many entrepreneurs don't sit down and think about what are the key things that, that could go wrong or that are flaws in your idea the critical flaws in your idea and steer into those problems figure out how to, to address is that a real problem too many people get excited about the engineering prototyping um, you know really like all the kind of the sexy stuff if you will of like building something but they don't really think about what what could go wrong enough so i would say this if you're going to fail eventually and most startups fail unfortunately you want to fail cheap and you want to fail fast right and get on with your life we both had the same mindset both had very nice jobs at the time, right? I'm practicing part-time. I'm working at a big venture fund. He was a VP of sales and marketing, a large genomics company. You know, we, 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 there was no reason for, there was no economic reason for us to quit those jobs, except that we felt that we had to, if we could prove this device had real legs. So for us, a couple of the things that uh, um, we, we kind of figured out we needed was one, because it's such a simple concept, could we actually get issued IP? Could we actually protect the idea with real patents? If you can't get issued IP in med tech, it's over. You're done. No one's going to fund you. you know, no one's going to buy you. That's something we, we knew we had to do. So that was one, one risk. We had 18 months to figure out how to get issued claims, not just file a patent, but get it issued so we had a real asset in the business. The second thing was to build the prototype, but, but the second part's more important. Build it and test it in some sort of clinical animal model, right? So is there a way to get some real clinical feedback that it's gonna actually work? Can we de-risk the functional aspects of it um, in some sort of model? So that was number two. And number three, which is really the more important one that most people forget about is the business side. So if you build this, this crazy tube in a tube, is anyone gonna actually pay for it? For us, we're entering a market that is re relatively commoditized. IV catheters are a buck fifty. Needles are far less than that. They've been around for you know decades. There's not a lot of innovation. What are you thinking, right? You're not curing cancer. Are you sure? You know, this is not a. Is this a billion dollar idea, or are you guys just going to be making a small iterative, you know, improvement to a commodity market that nobody cares about? So one of the ways to figure that out was we, we, we work with some, again, consultants and actually a professor at, at Wharton who specialized in pricing and value analysis. And we put together a, a quantitative survey that we got potential uh, future customers. So we identified hospital leaders and the folks that would be making purchasing decisions for this. And then we got about 40 of them to fill out the survey, mostly through begging, <laughs> occasionally through trying to give gift cards. But in general, it was begging setting up meetings, going to their office and saying, please, would you mind filling out this, this survey monkey survey for us? And we were able to show the value they saw in this was roughly about five times what they're paying today to do the same thing. And that was the critical thing that we saw, that we could uncommoditize a massive commodity market and that people were, were telling us they'd be willing to pay that number. If you build it, they will come and buy it. So that, that's how we put together the early days and worked together. And we did it all nights and weekends. We took zero salary. 
every dollar went into the business. Okay, so let's move forward in a direction that I think you were going anyway with your previous answer. The second iteration of Pivo was cleared for marketing by FDA in 2017. And from my understanding, this is where sales efforts really took off for your team. What was different about this second gen device that made the team confident in its benefit and safety? So, so part of the problem with any sort of FDA regulated device is that you have to lock the design pretty early on and then kind of begin the testing phase and all the submission phases that, that you need. So, so oftentimes your device is kind of locked about six months, a year, right before it gets through the FDA and gets onto the market. But your engineers don't just stop in that year and do nothing. We did some critical studies. And I actually remember there was one specific uh, ultrasound study on one arm, and we, we saw exactly the phenomenon that proved to us that we needed to be a longer device. We were basically just a little bit too short and that there were valves in the vessels that were getting in the way, these one-way valves in your veins that are designed to prevent blood from going backwards, right, to keep blood moving in this forward direction. They were the, they were the secret problem. That the reason why we were failing in the times we were failing is because we were unable to access the blood that was flowing ahead of the valve or downstream, and we were stuck behind the door of that valve. And that most collateral vessels, branches that come into this river, if you will, if you imagine like a river riverbed, they were usually, about 80% of the time, just past the next valve, and we were usually just right before the valve. So if we could open that valve door, we'd have access to flowing blood. There was not a lot of flowing blood in the compartment, that little trapped compartment that we were stuck in where the IV was. So we saw that on one patient, and then literally a year later, we launched Gen 2. So I saw, I saw the problem. We, 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 we realized it was a real issue. We replicated it in a few you know, more patients and more studies, but we, we saw it then, and we made the pivot on the engineering. And then a year later, we said, if this is true, the success rate should get to 95%. Not 100%. If 100% would be a very big device. This would be a spear. But we could get to 95 if we made it about three centimeters longer and tweaked a few things. So then we go and we do the we get Gen 2 approved and we get it out there. We track the first 500 uses literally with somebody at the bedside for every single one of them. It was either me, my co-founder, or somebody on the engineering clinical teams. They were literally at the bedside watching every draw. And the success rate? 94.7%. I mean, I had goosebumps. It just worked better. It was easier to use. It was cheaper to make. It was everything that you want a Gen 2 to be. Science works. You know, you can solve these problems. It just takes time and money, right? That's it. So armed with this validated device, how did you go about establishing an early customer base? Trying to become a commercial med tech company is incredibly hard. I underestimated the struggles that it is to sell anything, especially to hospitals, which are really tough beasts uh, with lots of committees, no single decision maker. And we are selling a device that is a patient satisfier, right? Trying to reduce needles and improve patient experience. But we don't come with extra reimbursement. We don't cure a disease. But the problem is that that is, a, you know, that's a tricky sell, right? If, if, if you could make money for a hospital, it's a much different situation. So being early commercial, we lived in all these hospitals when we did these early commercial pilots. Most companies can get to the pilot phase. So you can convince somebody to give you a small budget, to try a small experiment, pick some milestones for the hospital that are meaningful. But the problem is that they're good at saying yes to pilots. Most hospitals are really bad at running a pilot. They just, they're just not good at that. So you have to basically set it up completely for them, run it for them, 
live in that hospital. Blood draws, unfortunately, occur usually between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. So guess what? Fancy co-founder and, you know, C-level, you know, executives basically are living in the hospital when we're, a, you know, seven, 10-person company for months at a time trying to make sure these pilots are going well and, and trying to prove the outcomes that we need, right, which is that, that we're making an impact to care that the staff like us, right? And then we can prove some other outcomes beyond even just patient satisfaction, but general quality, reducing hemolysis and other other failures of blood collection. Could we address those too? And that became kind of the, the, the next phase of our company, which was outcomes focused, proving the outcomes and building the health economic model to justify our cost. Let's jump forward in time again. In the summer of 2021, it was announced that Volano Vascular would be acquired by Becton Dickinson, better known as BD. How did conversations of selling the company come about? In general, you're, you have this, this cat and mouse game with all of your acquires, all the big companies in our space over years. We met with them at conferences, their senior leaders, and you know, it's always that coy, what are you guys doing? Oh, cool. That sounds exciting. What are you, you know, they'd ask us, what are, what are you doing next? What customers did you get? What's happening on the clinical side? But in general, I think that the big companies rely on the little companies for innovation. For, for really groundbreaking innovation. And they're looking usually for key milestones before they acquire. Your job when you talk to these folks is not necessarily to convince them to buy you every moment. No, the, the job is to figure out what do they need. The person you're talking to has a boss and that person has a boss usually that's the board, right? So even if it's the CEO of the company, what, what are they looking for? Does it have to be a profitable business? For them to believe that you're a commercial success, is that 5 million in revenue, 10 million in revenue, 15 million in revenue? Is it market share points? You know, is it 1% of the market, 5% of the market? So what are their internal criteria? And then you want to find that out for all of your competitors and then figure out, can you achieve any of those milestones? Then you go back to your investors, ideally, and say, look, guys, we've surveyed the market. We've talked to our competitors. We know that in general, everyone's looking for us to get to X, Y, or Z. We need X amount of money to get to those milestones. So Eric, my co-founder, is a ferocious networker. He is amazing at networking. Um, he's a very likable guy. And he had a chance to go to a, a meeting where Tom Poland, the CEO of, of BD, was at. It was a small kind of exclusive boutique meeting with a bunch of healthcare leaders. So he, he goes and he gets sneakily, suspiciously put next to, sitting next to Tom Poland. Uh, that may or may not have been him working the conference organizers and thing. I want to sit next to Tom. And they eventually sat together, struck up a conversation. Now they, they both knew each other peripherally, but became more of an intimate relationship over that two-day conference where they were supposed to be talking about issues in med tech, how does the industry work, and they eventually went up having drinks and, and really talking. So I think that's when we got onto the radar. Now we're real people to the senior leader. Tom was also new. You're more likely to be acquired by a new team, a new leader, than somebody who's been there for 20 years, right? Because that new person is looking to make moves is looking to, to change things up, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to, to show progress. What triggered the acquisition, the timing of it? So why, why in 2021? Why not a year before? Why not a little later? So for us, one piece of luck. BD had a massive diagnostics business and COVID drove a huge increase in, that, in their revenue. And so they had an extra one to $2 billion in cash lying around because of COVID. They decided to take that cash instead of dividend it out to their shareholders. They wanted to actually reinvest that money into building a bigger, better BD. So Tom, as a new CEO, says, guys, give me a list of the best companies in different sectors that we should we should buy, right? That, that fit with us, that we that make us better. And so because they had extra money because of COVID, boom, there's a list being generated and we happen to be on the list. They couldn't get around us. They got extra cash. 
They're ready to make some moves. They gave us a call. We honestly were pretty skeptical. We thought they were trying to call to broker some sort of annoying partnership that would basically be them getting all the value and little companies basically getting screwed. So we were ready to say no. And then they kind of pivoted in the conversation. I forgot the exact words, but basically said, what would it take for you to be part of us? Once we realized what was happening, we said, all right, well, we'll, we'll get back to you. And, you know, emergency board meeting. And this was January, February of 2021, successfully acquired and the transaction finished in April. So it took about two and a half, three months to kind of do the whole process and about 45 days from term sheet signing to closing. Wow. So after the conversations moved to acquisition, diligence progressed. I would be interested to hear what your experience was like negotiating for terms. If we could dig into that a little bit, both in regards to financials and Volano's integration into BD. How did you feel about that experience? You got to return money to your investors. You made a promise to them that you're going to get them their money back, right? And and multiples of their money right, in return. So that, that's key. But the second aspect is what's going to happen to your team? Are they just buying you to kill it and shelve this thing and 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 never actually innovate? That was a real concern for a company the size of you know BD. We were very competitive and threatening to a lot of their portfolio, right? I mean, if we are right, their needle business uh, is not in a great position, right, in five or 10 years from now. So we had to believe that the leaders there really wanted to drive this as a new standard of care. Because again, it's great to make some money, but we were in this because we wanted to change medicine. I mean, that's why I created the vice. That's why I worked so hard. It wasn't just because I got a salary and you know my, I own a huge part of the company. It's because, because I wanted to be able to walk into a hospital or have my mom go to a hospital and have a better experience. And I could see a technology that we spent all that blood, sweat, and tears to build actually in use. I mean, that, that's actually the ultimately the most amazing feeling as you walk into a hospital that you've never been part of selling, you had nothing to do with it, and you walk in there, you're like, oh my God, they're using our technology. Like that, that's the dream. So you got to make sure the second thing is that the company's actually going to keep it moving and, and make it as a standard of care. And then I think the third part of any acquisition is you're worried about what happens to your team. So are they going to fire everybody after they buy us, right? Are they going to, what, what are they going to do with everybody? Now, most people, of course, are well taken care of. Every one of our employees had options in the company. So everybody was going to be, you know, doing, doing fine, but that's not, that's not the only consideration. So we wanted to make sure that they had a vision for how to integrate our company and our, and our team into, into them, right? To merge two entities together, it really is a marriage and there's a huge amount of things that have to be figured out while you're doing it in a very condensed timeline. All secretly, by the way, right? But without telling the rest of your team. So you're trying to negotiate for your team, but you can't tell them why you're, you're asking for certain things. We were very stressed. And you can't get excited about it because you know that at any point something could potentially change outside of your control. So you have this kind of weird, cautious optimism, but then you're also being brutally honest that like, we don't know what could happen. Let's just stay focused on the business. Keep everybody moving. I'd be interested to hear what you've been up to the last year and a half since Volano's operations were incorporated into BD. We spent about a year, uh, myself, my co-founder and our team, you know, as part of the integration with BD. And we, we agreed to stay on as part of the acquisition to help BD basically get as much value as they could from all the learnings and, and all of the experience from our team. And so that was kind of interesting to be to be now a, a small company guy, entrepreneur, founder, now part of a massive organization. That was kind of a fun experience to now meet your enemy, if you will, right? You're meeting you're meeting the other side and realizing that you're actually all pretty nice people. You hear all the stories that were happening behind closed doors. And that's that's a fun, I'd say, closure to hear the, the end. It was fun. But of course, as, it, as the year gets longer and longer, I get called less and less. And you can kind of see the writing on the wall that now it's time for me to move on to my next adventure. 
So that brings us to your departure from BD. What have you been up to since? One, uh, paying back my wife for all the times that I was gone and on the road. It has been a real toll. I think, uh, you know, people don't really appreciate that or acknowledge that. But on loved ones, when you are an entrepreneur, I was literally gone Monday through Friday for years. And then I'd be working on the weekends, right? I would be stressed over the weekends. I would be not present for things I should be present for because I was worried about, you know, something else going on, right, with the startup. So what I've been doing lately, I started getting much more active in angel investing in, in early stage companies in healthcare. I joined a band of angels here in Philadelphia called Robin Hood Ventures to um, hear pitches just like Shark Tank. And then usually we would do a, a, some diligence and then wind up investing in, in companies. I've become an advisor and or board member to about six different companies that I'm really excited about. Most recently, a professor that helped mentor me when I was in business school and then became my boss, my managing director at Safeguard Scientifics, Dr. Gary Kurtzman. He still teaches the healthcare entrepreneurship course at Wharton, and he actually asked me to co-teach or become a, basically an adjunct professor at Wharton for that class. But ultimately, I think I'm looking for that next great lightning in a bottle. Now, while some of our listeners might have the privilege of taking your Wharton class in the future, most sadly will not. So what parting advice would you have for aspiring innovators, future entrepreneurs who heard your story today and hope to achieve similar success? You're not usually going to be successful the first few times you try. So by definition, you have to keep trying. Most successful entrepreneurs that I have met, when you actually hear their real story, the true story, not the not their story on LinkedIn, right? But like the actual things they were working on in the gray zones, in between jobs, all of these things, or during school, for example, that didn't work out. There's usually a couple failed startups along the way. So don't let people lie to you and tell you it's super easy. And they're, you know, they started a company when they're 21 and now they're billionaires. That's usually not true. The, the Facebook story, the Zuckerberg stories are the outliers. That's the, that's the truth. Well, P2, we covered a lot of ground today. And I think the key points of our discussion are really going to inspire a number of our listeners out there today. So I just want to give you a big thank you for joining. You bet. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you.